Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. How y'all doing? Got a great show planned for you. We'll be joined later by Ian Jenkins, the author of a book about a thruple. That's right, three guys that are all in a committed, long-term loving relationship who both have adopted children and also are all on the birth certificate. I love hearing things about that. So we'll sit down and be talking to him, learning more about that. Uh, DMs as well, as always, if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. We are here for you, whatever questions you've got. Um, some interesting things going on from the American Psychological Association. Those are one of the governing bodies. Um, interesting stuff happening though in the LGBTQIA world, never ever, ever dull. God bless. Because yes, we still live in a time where people think that uh, human rights are up for debate, which is quite sad. But the American Psychological Association opposes, they say, transgender conversion therapy. Uh, yeah, you're late to the party, APA, but you always kind of are. Uh, but basically, they say transgender or non-binary, excuse me, transgender or non-binary gender identities are normal variations in human expression of gender. That's right. Attempts to force people to conform with rigid gender identities can be both harmful to their mental health and their well-being. Yeah, it's powerful that they came out and said that because what they say as the American Psychological Association holds a lot of power and there are still people that think that it's a mental illness and that treatment should be applied and can work. Now we know from people trying to create conversion therapy on those that are gay that not only does it not work, it leads to a lot of mental health issues, it creates and leads to, and also creates a high rate of suicidality because basically you're telling someone who you are is bad or wrong. And none of these pieces even matter. Someone's sexual orientation or gender identity should never be up for discussion. It's a small part of who they are, although culturally we've made it a large part of who someone is because of the way we oppose and battle it, right? But um, everyone has a right to have dignity and to feel good about who they are. So <sighs> it's meaningful that they came out. Um, yeah, because we're looking at, I mean, I'm just looking further into two different articles right now and you know, research is consistently talking about that. So the fact that this organization is behind them is meaningful. Now, you know, again, this is the largest professional psychological organization in the US. So that has a lot of relevance to people. Pushing further, talking more about body autonomy and mental health, Jonah Hill, yes, the actor who uh, is larger bodied. Basically, paparazzi posted a picture of him shirtless, had a little bit of a commentary on it, and he pushed back saying, look, this has been something that's been an issue my entire life, trying to learn to feel good in my body, right? And uh, I don't need to just grin and bear people making jokes. Look, I've said this before, I'll keep saying it again, let's not talk about people's bodies. You know, you might be thinking, you giving a compliment saying, you look great, you lost weight, you look great, you've gained weight. You never know what's going on with them. Some people being complimented for weight loss are actually patting them on the back for maybe having an illness, which has led to that, or telling someone they look great, they put weight on and triggering some body dysmorphia. Someone's body shape and size is relevant to literally absolutely nothing. Let's not weigh in on it. It doesn't let us know about their health because health exists at every body size. And we need to do a little bit more than look at someone's body size to know their health, but more importantly, People's mental health, because the way we've currently constructed culture is powerfully tied to the body size they have, we've made it that way. We need to neutralize that, where people can feel healthy, desirable, of worth and value at all sizes. So I love someone like Jonah Hill coming out saying, let's not keep talking about it. Why are magazines and magazine publishers supporting posting pictures of people's bodies and dissecting them and discussing them? That has nothing to do with who the individual is. Let's let's actually talk about real news. I'm consistently calling out 
journalists and news. And I question the person being either if their work is rooted in just gossiping and discussing people's bodies. Let's be better than that. Let's stop engaging and supporting that. So I'm really proud of him for coming out and saying that. His One of the biggest powerful quotes was, him saying, I'm 37 and I finally love and accept myself. Good. Accept yourself regardless of what your body is. We need to go to body neutrality, which is we don't need to love or hate our bodies. We need to not consider them as long as they feel good and we feel strong and they help us live in the world the way we want. Great. Your body's a vehicle. It is not an achievement. Your worth is not tied to that. But often people do, especially people of exploited and marginalized identity, which is why we see a lot of body dysmorphia in the gay, lesbian, transgender community, because they're struggling to find something they have control over that might make them feel okay. But that's a result of homophobia and transphobia. And once we resolve that, and move the focus from that and make it more about what kind of person are you, then people can really step into their truth. I work with far too many people. It is the rare person that is untouched by body shaming and body dysmorphia in our culture, and it's heartbreaking. And it occurs at every gender. No gender is spared that, you know, and it's really heartbreaking. And that bleeds out beyond just body shape and size, and we start talking about all other parts of body shame, you know? And mental health requires us to just let go and release all of that. But we have the world kind of throwing it back in our faces and holding us accountable. So we've got a lot of work to do. But coming up, we're going to be, uh, got a great show, but I'm most excited about Ian Jenkins' interview, so stick around for that. But we're also gonna be talking about how to improve a parent-child relationship. <laughs> a lot of damage, unfortunately, has been done during the pandemic. And then also talking later in the show about gender and, of course, closing out on our DMs. If you want to listen to more Loveline, you can always do so by going to wearechannelq.com, scrolling on down, clicking on my face, and there they are. You listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and radio.com. All righty, we're back. And uh, just to kind of place the next topic in uh, context, Gosh, we came through a really interesting time during the presidency where a topic that was very mental health driven and mental health centered was the whole question of what do I do about loved ones and family members that might have different politics than I have. And I've never seen so much distancing and disruption, some of it very necessary and absolutely rooted in mental health and boundaries and confidence. But um, how can we work on improving our relationships, right, with those that have taken accountability and those that have worked on healing? Because it's kind of a couple, it's a a multi-tiered topic right now. So essentially, we're going to talk about how to improve the relationship. But I want to just call out that there's never an expectation on someone who's been harmed or been the victim for them to have to... um, create space and sit down with the perpetrator. And that came up during, you know, that split between the Democrats and the Republicans, right? The uh, pro-Trumpers and anti-Trumpers. And a lot of people were saying, oh, we need to sit down and we need to find commonality. That's, that's actually not trauma-informed. Someone who's been traumatized by maybe a family member who's demonstrated racism or homophobia or transphobia, it is not on that victim or that person from that community to hold space for the perpetrator who has taken no accountability and therefore is not psychologically safe, right? But as a therapist, I will always hold space for uh, transformative justice, restorative justice, healing. If someone apologizes and they take accountability and they've taken steps to be better and they are now safe, How do we then step back into healing that relationship? And that's what the topic's really born out of. So again, it can apply to those political um, rifts and conflicts. It can apply to maybe someone who has come out about mental health issues or gender or sexual identity, whatever it is. How do we repair that? And it's specifically around parent and child. And that's a very, very interesting relationship because it's one that's historically rooted in a power differential, right? Children are actually very disempowered. Childhood is a time where you have a lot of power over and parents, um, in a lot of ways necessarily and understandably, have to be somewhat of an authority, right? And what happens though, when that child grows up and becomes an adult themselves and seeks to have less of a, what we call vertical relationship where there's power over and now more of a horizontal where it's just person to person, adult to adult. And that's kind of like a a buried message I say to parents, as your child becomes an adult, you have to start to relate to them as an adult. It won't be healthy for them mentally to still be treated as though they're a child, therefore less than or not aware of themselves or not making good decisions or not in control of their life. And I know that it's hard for parents to do that. 
but it has to be done. Otherwise, children start to distance and take space. And that's the number one answer when someone says, I don't know why my child doesn't stay close or doesn't share things with me. Well, are you safe for them to go to? Are you safe for them to share things with? Or do you still try to dominate, assert control, assert your needs, shame and judge? Uh, because the role of a child, especially as they enter adulthood, is to decide what life they are meant to lead. It shouldn't be the life that you want for them or the life that makes you comfortable. They don't need to accommodate your feelings or thoughts about the life they're leading. And so it's okay if you don't approve. They're not needing or shouldn't be seeking your approval, right? Your job is to witness and support your child becoming who they're meant to be. And that will actually often mean being let down by the decisions they make, right? It's a very, very, very interesting thing, but that's just part of that process. So how do we start to improve? Uh, it's difficult work, but it's important work. And unfortunately, I see some families have this space and rift because that's the work is not done. And <clears throat> excuse me, remember, mental health matters and it's always going to be mental health first. Um, and a lot of this conversation is going to be about respect and boundaries. And again, like I said, as a child relates to a parent, often boundaries aren't allowed, right? They're enforced. They're forced upon. And we have this word called adultism. And adultism is the idea that children don't have rights and that their thoughts and opinions aren't valid or meaningful. And they need to be, especially as they age. So the first perspective you always want to remember is you need to talk to the, an adult like they're an adult at all times, right? Um, and that's, that's a shift. That's a growth. You know, you watch your little one visually and physically age, but we don't always honor the psychological needs that have to age and shift as well, especially when they let us down, especially when they disappoint us, right? Especially when there's disagreements. And it's very easy for us to fall back in our old roles because that's what's most familiar, right? And, you know, I use this word a lot these days, which is interesting, but <clears throat> the law of human gravity, we will always go back to what's most comfortable and what's most familiar. And unfortunately for a lot of us, it's that parent-child dynamic versus adult to adult. And so we have to be aware of that. We have to track that, right? Um, and that's always in service of keeping these relationships going. So we have to allow that. Also, we have to both take responsibility, right? Both of them, child, parent, have to work on showing up, have to work on maintaining, have to work on initiating contact. I often see parents staying put and expecting this new adult to come to them always. But again, we're getting rid of these power dynamics. Um, it should be adults take responsibility for seeing adults. And sometimes that will then mean instead that the parents go see what has historically been their child. But again, that's this parallel horizontal structure. It's not the top down anymore where we're the adults and you're the child. And the minute you hear yourself thinking or speaking those terms, you've exited what we're talking about. And you've left mental health. When you say, well, I'm the adult, it's like you automatically think because of this position or role that, isn't any longer really real or needed that you can have demands and that you should be accommodated in a way that's sometimes to the detriment of the child. That isn't going to work for another adult because that's not healthy boundaries. It's not rooted in self-esteem that honors both. And I use this word a lot with couples called mutuality. I don't like the word equality because equality can be misused to imply 50-50. What we really want is mutuality, which means everyone has an equal say, their, their opinions equally matter, and everyone has the same amount of power and influence over the relationship. That means more because things will never be equal. Rough, horrible example, in a coupledom, there will always be maybe someone who is prefers cooking or, or prefers more tidiness and cleanliness, so they do that more. Maybe one person's only responsible for cleaning or taking the trash out. So it's not always gonna be equal, but I want them to have mutuality, which means they both feel empowered. They both feel like their voice and opinion matters. That's the psychological piece. I don't ma it doesn't matter if behaviorally things are equal, as long as everyone's feeling equally empowered, and that will often lead to things not being equal. I'm gonna take a little bit of a break, and when we come back, we're gonna keep talking about the shift that's needed to repair child-adult relationships. And again, as always, this applies to everyone because I'm also talking within it about general relationships and what's needed, right? Listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. And again, we're talking about repairing relationships, but we're specifically doing it through the entry point of parent and child. And that's where a lot of work happens in my office clinically, where I see people that are entering adulthood 
and they're needing to be treated and seen and related to as the adult that they're becoming. But it's really hard for people in positions of power, like parents, to let go of that power. And that's what it means to see your children now as an adult and to relate to them in a horizontal way from adult to adult, no longer vertical, where you have the power over. But parents have to let go of that, this idea that, well, I'm the parent, and so my needs come first, or blah, blah, blah. No, that doesn't work in adult relationships. Adults with self-esteem require what they require, and often it'll mean a real change in perspective. So we're talking about allowing that. We're talking about we need to speak to each other like adults. We're talking about allowing this shift where everyone takes responsibility for seeing everyone and things might change. No, everyone might not be coming home to the familiar family home for holidays. Maybe this new adult has priorities or needs where they're located and needs you to go to them. We have to be allowed to have change and disruption. That's the way we know we're in a healthy relationship. Whatever that relationship may be, whatever label it is, doesn't matter. It's not just parent and child. We know we're truly in relationship when sometimes we're put out or someone else's needs are put before ours. And if that's not happening and you're not doing that, well, then you need to check in on that because that means that you're not in a true relationship because a true relationship has mutuality, which means equal power. Everyone's needs matter. No one's needs matter more than someone else's. When there's an adult and there's a child, unfortunately, that's often the case where, you know, dad sits at that chair, dad sits at the head of the, at the table. He needs that symbolism to feel in control and like a man and empowered. And it's like, mm, that's not mentally healthy. And we're trying to move away from that. But especially when that child becomes an adult, their needs matter just as much as everyone else's. And I don't like the use of these words like respect. It's not a lack of respect and it's not a sign of respect to put someone before you. It's a lack of mental health. Right? Everyone's needs matter and everyone's needs are valid, especially when we're talking about someone of any marginalized or exploited identity, even more so. Um, so what else? Well, we have to learn how to be different in the way that we manage conflict and disagreement, right? Because then, again, in the, in the past, the adult's needs were always centered. But now as this adult child is coming into their own and asserting boundaries and giving voice, that's going to shift. And we have to move into really allowing the respect of each other's boundaries, where the adult child might no longer bring you into their decision-making process. Um, I used to watch some relationships where children, even as adult, thought that they had to get their parents' um, agreement or even sometimes permission to leave a job, to take a job, to weigh in on their choice of partner or to get married. And that's not mentally healthy for an adult to worry about their decisions and how this other adult will manage them. As a parent, you're expected to have grown and to be able to manage letdown and disappointment that your child might not choose a partner of the gender or race or sexual orientation or religion that you'd prefer. Your preference doesn't matter. It's up to them to decide what makes sense to them. And my heart is broken when I see people walking away from jobs and relationships or other opportunities because it might make their parents unhappy. That's okay to do that. That's actually a sign you're living your life when you make others unhappy or disappointed at times. Even in adult-to-adult -adult romantic relationships, it's okay for a husband or a wife or two husbands to do things where the other person's not happy or not satisfied. It's okay. It's okay to say, listen, I know that you're not happy with this decision, but it was important for me to do it because it served my needs. And I'm okay with letting you down around that. This is something I needed. There are times where we have to do that. We always want to consider the impact of our behavior on others, but sometimes what's in our best interest won't be what others would prefer for us, and we have to do it anyway. And that especially happens with adults and children, where you would choose a lifestyle or a career or a relationship, and your parents' answer has to be, okay, that might not be what I would want for you, but I know that that doesn't matter, and that your decision-making matrix shouldn't be about what would mom or dad think, or mom and mom or dad and dad. It's about what do I need? And the parent's job is to witness that and to support that, you can weigh in lovingly, but it shouldn't be a demand for your needs to be accommodated, which leads to also being able to accept feedback, right? That's how we know that we're in a healthy relationship when we can vocalize and speak up for our needs and our thoughts and our desires, right? Because I know that all of this shift in movement is difficult, but this is what it feels like and this is what's required to move towards adult relationships. And sadly, I work with adults that have a very primitive or elementary relational style and that starts at home how authoritarian and authoritative were your parents and how so do they continue to be right not all parents start to empower their children and i'd love to see more of that we'll talk more about that how do you empower your children at a young age to have confidence in their decision making and not to remove it again we use that word adultism the idea that kids matters kids thoughts and feelings and and, and ideas don't matter and that's not okay 
but for the purpose of this topic, right? It's about understanding that as someone steps into adulthood, it's important for them to take control back. And that's how we start to do some of this repair because unfortunately a lot of our childhood relationships with parents and other people in positions of power have been sites of violence or oppression or trauma. And we're trying to, as adults, to move away from that and reformulate. Um, all right, coming up next, we're going to be doing DMs. And later in the show, we're going to be sitting down with Ian Jenkins. He is part of that famous thruple because he has a book out about it. What is it like when three dads all together in a committed relationship cohabitate and raise children? And they also had a victory in getting all of the father's names put on their children's birth certificate, which is stunning because Birth certificates, just like every other institution, needs to meet the needs of people, not people meeting the needs of that. There are three people in the relationship. They shouldn't have to exclude one of them to fit into paperwork, right? All right, we're going to talk more about that, but coming up next, some DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, my little sister just lost her best friend to a drunk driving accident. The boyfriend was driving. They were both drunk and she lost her life. The boyfriend walked away with scratches and my sister is having a really hard time coping with losing her friend. She needs to find a constructive way to deal with the loss. But right now, she's just so angry. Do you have any ways to help with grief? Uh, yes. <clears throat> a lot of people enter anyone's struggle, whether it's anxiety, grief, depression, with this idea that we need to fix, we need to cure. The, the answer is you let her be on her process. There is no right way to grieve. It is not bad or wrong that she's angry. It is not bad or wrong if she continues to be angry. The way we support a loved one's mental health is by not trying to change them or usher them out of it. If someone's depressed, you let them be depressed. If someone's anxious, you let them be anxious. We just hold space. We let it be a companion. You know, grief and loss, grief and loss takes as long as it takes. There's no right length of time. There's no wrong way to grieve. People go through their process. And what grieving people need is other people to be willing to be a companion on that journey with them. Because some grief doesn't ever go away. A lot of grief we will carry with us forever. It's just that it gets softer, maybe not as present or as powerful, right? We move on and we move back to other elements of our life, but we have memory, associations will trigger. We will feel feelings again. So your work is not about getting her over it, through it. We, we now know that all those stages of grief and loss are not correct at all. In fact, those were written for people that they themselves were, were dying. It wasn't about the other people who have lost someone. So it's misunderstood and misused, but some people think that we have to get people to go through certain stages with, on a certain time frame. None of that's true, accurate, and none of that's helpful. Let your, let your sister be where she is, right? We don't push people or force people. Mental health is not about optimization. It's not about efficiency. And that's part of our capitalist culture. We want people to get it together, pull it, pull it together, get back to work, get back to life. Mental health doesn't care about that. Mental health has to come first. And this person, your sister needs to go through the process she needs to go through losing her best friend. And that will take as long as it takes. And she will need to do what she needs to do. She might need to take time off from work time away from people, time focusing on things that make her feel good, but just support her in going through her process. The most traumatizing, toxic thing we can do is make it about us. Because that's what happens. People themselves get tired of hearing someone's grief or loss or witnessing it or being a part of it. Take care of yourself. You focus on your boundaries and your self-care, but let her go through her process, truly. You witness it with her. You ask her if there's anything she needs. Otherwise, you sit in it with her, but do not force her along it or through it. And that's what all the research is showing us, that we no longer have cultural rituals around grief and loss. And so people don't know what to do. And there's some other cultures that have some really beautiful processes that they go through to help people feel like they can fully embody it. But we don't want to just hand her tissues and make her feel better and tell her to stop crying. We want her to be allowed to sit in it, to discuss it, to process it, to feel it. We need to go through that process. It's okay to not be okay. And that's a message you need to let her, let her have. That weeks from now, she's like, oh, I need to get over this. No, you don't be where you are. I need to get back to work. No, you don't be where you are. I need to feel better. No, you don't be where you are. That's the messaging you need to give her. That's the messaging I want everyone to give someone that they love that's in their life if they're struggling with grief and loss. That there's no right way. And culturally, we need to allow people to mourn, but it's hard to watch someone mourn because it's heavy, it's dark. It can trigger our losses. But people need to have grief and go through mourning. And mourning is the outward expression of that grieving process. But the most important thing is to know there's no right way, there's no right time frame, and your job is not to fix it, 
help it along, to discourage it, right? Just be present. And that's also sometimes the most difficult thing to do. We'd rather be given a few tools or trips or t uh, tips or tricks. That's not how mental health works. It's like when we're depressed, we need to learn how to sit and carry our depression. Same thing with our anxiety. We're too obsessed in our capitalist culture about getting back to work, getting it back together, pushing ahead. No, we have to stop trying to be so strong and allow ourselves to find more comfort and confidence in our weaknesses and our soft spots. That's where the work is. Otherwise, we actually further complicate and traumatize people. So just be present and let her know you're there and love her. All right, y'all, coming up, we're gonna be sitting down with Ian Jenkins, the author of a book about being a polyamorous father in a relationship with two other men, all in love, all raising children, it's a beautiful thing. Love comes in many different styles and configurations, as do families. We'll be sitting down talking with him and then uh, closing out the show with some DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. And uh, gosh, okay. So coming up next, we're going to be talking with Ian Jenkins, uh, part of that thruple that you've been hearing a lot about in the news. Uh, he has a book that just came out, and that is about what it's like to be in a three-person relationship while raising children, all the fathers, and also being on the birth certificate. So we'll be talking about that. Um, <clears throat> super excited for that. But uh, I wanted to just talk quickly about aging. I want to talk more about ageism in general. Um, people assume that ageism is something that works against people in uh, later years, but it's also something that works against younger individuals. Ageism is, again, prejudice and discrimination based on someone's age, whether older or younger, right? And we can see it on both ends of the spectrum. But what I wanted to zero in on um, just really quickly is this whole decline narrative. We really had this narrative that aging is nothing but loss and decline and fragility, and it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And, and you know, we want to start reminding ourselves that every age bracket <clears throat> has strengths and weaknesses. But um, an article came out that I thought was really great, and it looks at ways that our brain actually improves with age. And I think it's meaningful at all places in life, especially as we're young, to start to re-narrate how we see being older um, and that there are some benefits. So yeah, there are some downsides to aging, but aging also has upsides. And our culture really needs to look at some of the positives. And luckily, you know, we're now seeing more celebrities of older years being more confident in expressing their age, whether it's less airbrushing, uh, photos without makeup, also showing their bodies and showing that you can still be sexually active, you can still be a parent, you can still be doing well in your career, all sorts of different things. But I want to look at specifically the neurological or the cognitive upsides of aging. And this is information that came out of uh, the journal Psychology and Aging. And it looks at the mental functioning of people in later years. Um, so happiness on the scales tend to dip during our 40s and 50s, but they rise steadily over the remainder of our life. Now that's not necessarily paved in stone, not everyone's experience will be that way, but it's more to call out if in your 40s or your 50s, you're feeling as though your happiness isn't as it was, know that it will then kick back in and increase. That's what some studies show. They also show that on average, self-esteem also seems to rise, but that's with each age. Now that's only if you're doing the work to be around people that reflect back that you still have worth and value as you age and culture does the same. If you're not in those contexts, you're not gonna necessarily have that increasing self-esteem. Talk about that with sex as well, that as you age and get more comfortable with your body and your sexuality of whatever kind it is, hetero, gay, kinky, whatever it is, asexual, that it should improve your relationship to that. That yeah, our bodies might be in their sexual prime in terms of, you know, birth, which is really what they're talking about when they talk about your prime um, being around 18, 20, 21, but that your sexual, your sexual prime actually should increase in terms of confidence and engagement and pleasure as we learn more about sex and about sexuality and about our own sexual body. So if you do the work, it should increase. Um, also looking at creativity. Uh, creativity is rooted in a lifetime of experience and it doesn't actually peak until middle age. And that makes sense because experience and confidence and authenticity are what tend to drive creativity. And that's not available to us at younger years where we're focused more on conformity and assimilation and people pleasing. And we're still developing ourselves and we're still experiencing things, right? We don't necessarily have access to things that would inspire. So creati creativity improves, happiness improves, confidence improves, right? That's important. What else? How does the brain literally shift? Well, older folks find it easier to focus. Older folks were also less anxious. Older folks had more control of their brains, right? 
Research suggests, and this is a quote, that older adults can be more focused, less impeded by anxiety, and less mentally restless than younger adults. That's part of why I think confidence is there and happiness. They're focused on what matters. They've learned life lessons. Also, the research shows that as we age and our memory gets somewhat less reliable, right, that's memory, our brains will compensate by learning to focus better on the task at hand. We might forget our keys, in other words, I love this example, but when you sit down to do work, your brain is less likely to get distracted by every passing worry and daydream. That's massive. And I wanna keep reporting on the assets, strengths, and benefits of an aging brain because again, we're so focused in our culture on the deficits and this decline narrative that life gets worse, more isolated, bad. It doesn't have to and it shouldn't, but a lot of people play into that. And they'll say, well, I'm too old for. The minute you hear yourself saying that, stop. And really check in, is that honest and authentic to who I am and what I want and what I do? Or am I just playing into a narrative? A narrative that's working against me and really limiting my access to happiness and what I want to do. Because sometimes that's what it really is. It's not in real time. It's a socially constructed ideological limit. It's a belief system. And those are malleable. That's the beautiful thing of belief systems and ideals and norms. We create them. They're plastic and malleable. We can re-narrate them and change them. And we need to do that. And that's why I like they're having more and more role models and examples of people that are in later years of life, which by the way, is not a gift that everyone's even given. So we should see aging as a gift that you've gotten to be around that long. Not everyone gets that, right? But we need role models and studies and research to remind us, and we want to start to internalize that. We want to be very thoughtful about how we discuss being young or older, because those are the two polarized positions that tend to be most negatively impacted by ageism. All right, coming up next, excuse me, coming up next, Ian Jenkins will be sitting down talking about his new book and his relationship and uh, closing out the show with some DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and uh, it's a new year. So uh, we want to start it off with some positivity and some inspiration. Again, getting your entire family legally recognized on your child's birth certificate is a mandate for a family to feel really cohesive and um, also respected. But what happens when you're in a polyamorous relationship and there are three fathers? We're going to be interviewing Ian Jenkins about his new book, Three Dads and a Baby. Ian Jenkins, uh, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So I was super excited to have you on for a multitude of reasons, not just because of the topic of your book, but also because of the psycho-cultural impact that such a topic has. So for those that are not familiar with your book yet, Three Dads and a Baby, uh, give them a little bit of your pitch. What is this book about? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a partner uh, going on 18 years now, and we had a third uh, join us uh, going on eight years now, and we started a family. And uh, that's not entirely unusual. There's lots of polyamorous families out there that have kids from previous relationships or that developed during that relationship. But we were the first to get uh, a, a birth certificate that recognizes all of us as legal parents at the child's birth. So we're the first poly family um, with a, to be legal parents of a, of a new child. First off, congratulations. Um, here at Loveline, we love normalizing all the diverse uh, creative ways that love, uh, gender, sexuality can exist. And what I'm thankful for is not both that you've created that precedent, but also writing the book, because I work with a lot of individuals that are poly themselves, considering opening up. And one of the first things they worry about is, will they be taken seriously as a unit in a family? Um, so what I think is really profound, first, congratulations. Anyone that can be in a relationship for 17 years is phenomenal. So well done on that end. Um, your your third partner, Jeremy, uh, has been with the two of you for eight years. So just talk a little bit about that. What was it like being in a non-traditional relationship in terms of friends and family members' responses? Well, you know, I had some introduction to this because when I was growing up as a gay kid, I thought that I might never be able to have a normal relationship because I didn't know if I'd ever be able to be out or to celebrate Christmas with my family, with my partner present. And the world has changed a tremendous lot. And so it was a little similar introducing everyone to us being polyamorous and not just um, gay, but really not that different. And we're actually pretty boring people. So everyone was like, oh, okay, another nice person in the home. And that was about it. So families were um, pretty welcoming. Uh, Jeremy comes from a very conservative religious background. And so his parents had a little bit more adjustment to do, but now everyone is completely on board. And of course, 
nothing pleases parents more than having grandchildren. So that's the ticket. That's right. That's all they care about. Um, I like you using the word boring because I think some people misinterpret polyamory, open relationships, throuples, all the diverse creative ways that we can be in relationships as being about sex or hypersexuality when in fact it's about love, care, commitment, trust, right? Pretty much. Um, and uh, we're very ordinary home when people come over and spend time with us or have dinner in the pre-COVID era. Um, you know, that's that's mostly, I think, what relationships are, is trying to figure out what to watch on TV and what you're going to have for dinner. And we do that. There's just one more person in the house. So he's the tiebreaker. We all need a tiebreaker. That actually, that's actually something to that. So when two people are, you know, if they have any kind of minor argument, you can have a he said, she said, or a he said, he said, or a she said, she said. Um, but when there's three of you, sometimes people are like, you know, Alan and Jeremy will sit me down and say, Ian, you're wrong about this one. And uh, it makes it a little bit easier. I just have to say, well, okay. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm always trying to talk more just about the health of children in a gay relationship. The studies show that they not only do well, they do better in some markers of mental health. They do better with empathy, communication skills, acceptance of diversity. And so, you know, being in a gay relationship, children thrive. Talk a little bit about the impact a thruple uh, could have on a child thus far. You have two children. Yeah, we do. So um, three and a half and one and a half now. We thought a lot about that because we wanted to parent with intention and make sure that our children had the best possible experience. We thought about whether they would be judged or, or teased for having three parents. And we made sure we were in a place where they would be welcomed too. And so far, everyone has just been fantastically enthusiastic about it. There is a lot of research on this subject, but it's very hard to get an accurate picture because the people that tend to present themselves for research are predominantly white and they live in you know liberal areas they tend to be highly educated and so they're not really representative of you know the whole of america but among those children research shows that they thrive as well and that they are more open to different family types as one would imagine and they tend to have better communication skills because you know when there's three parents around there's more communicating to do so we all have practice yeah, more more love, more support, also more financial support, which is great. And um, I, I have a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I have a few therapist friends that are in polyamorous relationships and they're starting to put books out there. They tend to have a little bit more of a clinical slant. Your book though, tell us about that specifically. Um, it's more memoir driven, correct? Yeah, we wanted to basically tell our story of love and the love that we developed for Vidi's children and the different adventures and challenges we had to, to have our family. Um, I do break here and there to talk about everything from, you know, the legal landscape of polyamory and raising children to things like the decline in sperm counts worldwide and some other minor topics. But it's really just about the journey of love and the challenges we had in um, having the children. So pretty strange things happened along the way. I bet. And, and also one of the things I've learned in doing sex therapy is that whether someone's in a monogamous relationship, an open relationship, poly, that there's a lot we can learn from the skills that are required to pull off a successful open or polyamorous relationship. I'm often folding that in to more traditional relationships. Um, what are some of the things you would learned in being in a poly relationship? Yeah, You mean about like uh, communication and, and yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I do think that it actually is really nice to have that third person that is the tiebreaker, like we talked about, because it encourages all of us to sort of say, I'm not just going to take my position. I'm going to listen to the other people that are here, because if, if there is a two to one kind of situation about some issue, whether that's parenting or the decision the family has to make, it, it teaches us to be open to, um, to more input, more feedback. And I think that's great. And then it just teaches us to be more communicative, just to really make the effort to sit down with someone and say, these are the issues let's talk about this. What are your feelings? Make sure everyone feels heard because there's just a lot of more tr literal triangulation that has to occur for everyone um, to be comfortable with anything that happens going forward. And there's also the additional challenge of, you know, in a two person relationship, a kid can always go and ask the other parent to try to get something the first parent didn't want. Well, that's just multiplied now. <laughs> uh, so we have to make a special effort to be on the same page about everything. Um, Good luck to parent. <laughs> And I, I thought one of the most adorable parts of all this was the names, um, Daddy, Dada, and Papa. Because I think that's also something my mom asked me about that. Don't they get confused with the names? And I'm like, oh, no, no, they've got that on lockdown. Yeah, the kids know them. Um, I don't all the time. So you have to remember <laughs> that a dad is not necessarily a dad. He's a Papa or something like that. But uh, the kids have got it. 
And we realized it's probably going to change because I think that um, when my kids graduate from high school and I'm 60, they're probably not going to be calling me Papa. So uh, we're curious, but we think it might turn out to be like, um, you know, Daddy Ian, Daddy Jeremy, Daddy Alan. But we'll, we'll let them evolve that for us. Well, well done. And again, I think what's really powerful for me is just the groundbreaking, the groundbreaking relevance of what you're doing. And hopefully that'll open doors for other people because relationships exist just like families exist, which is not always in the traditional sense. People sometimes fall in love with more than one person. And, you know, our culture, our legal system, our educational system, it has to meet the needs of people. People need to not be forced to squeeze into those structures, right? Agreed. Um, you know, marriage used to be about property. Uh, you owned your wife, you know, and uh, people used to be able to assault their spouses. And uh, now we see things like Somerville in Massachusetts is granting more um, legal rights to polyamorous families, which is fantastic. And we learned that our um, birth certificate precedent uh, was discussed sort of up and down the West Coast. California, not surprisingly, sets a lot of precedent when it comes to family law. So we were excited to hear that because it means that more people will have the opportunity to be equal parents um, in unusual relationships going forward. Bam. I love it. Ian Jenkins, author of Three Dads and a Baby. Thank you so much for being a part of our show. Thanks for having me. Stay Have safe, a beautiful everyone. rest of your night. Absolutely. Be well. Bye. That was phenomenal. Oh, you can't hear me out, out this way. I, I got so excited. We're off air now, but I got so excited when I, when I saw the book and looked at what it was about because I'm working with more and more gay couples that are trying to kind of extend their family. And, you know, we, we love seeing role models. We love seeing people that can kind of reflect back what's possible, that it can be done in a loving way. So I'm definitely going to be recommending your book to a lot of people. Super excited to hear yeah. it. Yeah. Have a great night. Thanks for being a part of the show. Yeah. All right, we're back. Uh, let's do a little update on LGBTQIA news. Why? Well, most news is just cis heterocentered, and Loveline likes to uh, bring the news to everyone. It's been a little up, a little down. We were reporting uh, the other day on how Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons has donated his child home, his childhood home, to help LGBTQIA youth. Uh, the Mormon faith is often very, very punishingly anti-gay, but wait, gets unfortunately kind of odd. So up until 1976-77 here in the States, homosexuality was still defined as a mental illness, right? Um, which is really heartbreaking. But then we, we undid that, which also just goes to show the social construction of mental illness, that what's defined as a mental illness is rooted in the diagnostic manual. And what gets put in or taken out is basically based on a vote. Now there's research that's utilized, but what research do you need or what research could even be done to show whether or not certain things are a mental illness, like being gay was defined as a mental illness. There's no research to prove that or unprove that. That's a social construction. That's literally just an ideology. What well, was voted out? <clears throat> well, unfortunately, homosexuality can still be called a mental disorder in China. A court ruled that, yep. A court in China's Eastern province has ruled in favor of a publisher that described homosexuality as a psychological disorder in a university textbook. Yes, folks, that is happening in the year 2021, where we still have people debating the worth and value of people that are not heterosexual. It's ridiculous. Um, and the description of homosexuality is in a section under common psychosexual disorders, along with other problematic terms like cross-dressing and fetishism. Now that's offensive. Cross-dressing is not a term we use anymore. That's highly offensive. Um, that might be someone, I mean, again, we'll unpack what that means in another segment, but that is a word that used to be used to pathologize people that were trans or non-binary uh, or gender fluid. And also fetishism is another way to pathologize people that have diverse creative sexual interests. Um, so the fact that this is being allowed um, is really upsetting. Uh, I don't even know what to say. I can't say much more about that. Um, more work to be done. If, if that doesn't galvanize us to do the work, I don't know what else will. Good news, an in in evangelical adoption agency has ended the ban on same-sex parents adopting after almost 80 years. They're finally allowing that. Now that's great, why? Do we children need homes? <laughs> like it's anti-child rights to deny them access to a loving couple that want to take care of them. And we know from studies that children do not need a mother and a father. They need caregivers of any gender, of any gender, of any gender, of any sexual orientation. We have to let go of those ideas. In fact, we know from studies and research that children do better on some psychological and social scales 
when they are raised by same-sex parents. So it can be a strength and an asset. But more importantly, why are you denying children homes because of being a bigot? So it's so good that that's been undone. That doesn't mean that that is the case across the board. There are still adoption agencies that won't do that. So, you know, again, we still have people debating the rights of trans individuals to play on sports and to use the bathroom, (laughs) right? It is still a mental illness in some textbooks in China. Like, let us be you know, inspired by all of that, that uh, all is not well in that world. And then finally, let's also talk about Demi Lovato. This came out, I think about a week ago, where she put a post out that upset people saying that gender reveal parties are both transphobic and outdated. I've been saying that forever because you're making an assumption about someone's gender based on their sex, based on their genitals. You're deciding their gender for them. Well, that's not how it goes. Individuals choose their gender when they're of age whatever age that is, when they're old enough to choose what they want to wear, how they want to express themselves, how they want to identify. Parents can only assume or hope. But if you're a parent, you need to be open to your child choosing their gender, that not everyone goes along with the gender that they're assigned at birth. And that's what gender reveal parties do. And they misuse the word gender when it's really a sex reveal party. Because all you can really say is, our child has you know, um, a vagina, or a child has a penis, or a child has both, or a child has whatever. But it's a sex reveal party. It's not a gender reveal. And it also forces you to then maybe raise them away that is not aligned with who they are. So I'm glad Demi's stepping out and saying that. But of course, people are very, very, very upset about things like that. Um, But here's why it matters. A trans teen died by suicide after posting video of a school counselor yelling at her for wearing a skirt. Why would she not wear a skirt? It's a girl. Some girls like to wear skirts. Why? Because she was a trans girl. And this is coming from a school counselor who should obviously not be counseling and is not safe around diverse individuals. So let's get them removed from that position and let's also not continue to let people die. What means more to you? Regulating and policing gender expression or people's lives? Because that's what kills me about people that are talking about being pro-life but then are completely okay with punishing people who are trying to just live their life in a healthy, expressive way. Y'all, we got a lot of work to do. And again, I'm calling on you, cisgendered people, we all gotta step up and manage the transphobia that we create and sustain. And heterosexual people are responsible for homophobia because those are the individuals that create it and sustain it. So we got a lot of work to do, y'all, but it can be done. All right, coming up next, we are gonna slide into those DMs. Uh, if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page in the DMs. You are listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Hey, Dr. Chris, uh, I'm, I'm the middle child. My older brother is one year older, and my younger brother is three years younger. My mom has always favored them and babied them our whole lives. A few nights ago, she was drinking and let it slip that her mom was so mean to her and not her brothers, so she did the same thing with us kids growing up. The more and more I think about this, the more it hurts me. Why didn't she want to break the cycle? I want to talk to her about it and how I feel. I'm not sure where to start. Well, I mean, that's just the reminder that um, when someone's struggling, we have to always ask, I wonder what happened to them that made them operate and move through the world in the way that they do or the way they see the world or the reason why they have the skills they have or don't have. It's called a trauma-informed approach. No one just wakes up and decides to struggle It's either due to cultural systems like racism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, body shaming, or, and combined with also our own historical traumas, what went on in our early lives. You know, people put a lot of pressure on parents that somehow because someone gives birth to someone that they're healthier or further along, they're not. We we really almost should stop using that word and just say people, people and people. You know, having the label parent doesn't mean that you're inherently healthier or more mature, but we have that expectation. We need to on one level because yes, they're now a caretaker. So I do want those out there. If you're going to have children, do some work on yourself. You are going to be a caretaker. Make sure you are able and willing to do the work it takes. But as the children of caretakers, we need to understand that they are living their lives as well. And they're dealing with the wounds that they are dealing with. And it's not as easy as why didn't she just decide to break the cycle? Like it's just a decision you make. Does she even know there's a cycle? Does she even know what the other options are? Is she even aware of herself? Most likely not. I don't believe your mom just was like, I'm cool, you know, uh, uh, reenacting my early trauma. Most people aren't trauma aware. You know, our culture usually isn't therapeutically centered or mental health centered. Most people don't talk about mental health, right? 
And we often blame the kids. We'll say, oh, they have mommy or daddy issues. You mean their parents were poor parents? They weren't great parents? Like, so we want to be very thoughtful about not victim blaming, but we don't also necessarily want to victim blame the parents because, again, not everyone's aware of the cycles they're trapped in, you know? But I think there's a loving way possibly to start the conversation. But I f- first want to ask you, what is it you're looking to hear? An apology? Um, you know, it is where it is. But what you can do is lovingly sit down and reflect with your, you know, talk to your mom about what it's like to be part of that family unit. Hey, mom, I wanted to talk about the way I feel sometimes we relate and what our relationships is about. Because you don't know what her story is. So I don't want you to diagnose her. It's not appropriate for you to tell her why she is the way she is or even to tell her how she is. But it is okay in all relationships to reflect back what it's like to be in a relationship with them. Hey, mom, sometimes it's very hard. I see you treat my siblings differently. Can we talk about why that might be? Or more importantly, can I just ask you to start to treat me differently, to treat me better. Can we talk about our relationship? We don't need to go back into the history all the time. A lot of trauma work is done by just looking at how things show up in the future and understanding how things can be different right now, how things are showing up now, how they can be different now, and pushing forward with difference, right? So there's work to be done for both of you. You need to work on accepting your mom, who she is, understanding the struggle she has, hoping she's doing the best she can, And also you need to sit down and again, reflect that back. I want everyone to do that in all their different relationships. Give someone an opportunity to have a mirror held up and to be told that there's a struggle because not everyone's aware of themselves. In fact, most people aren't. And then uh, advocating for what your needs are. It's hard to be a parent. It's hard to be a child. It's hard to be a person on this planet. You know, we're we're up against a lot of forces and I don't know what's currently going on in her life because maybe there's something going on that you're not being brought into because of privacy or boundaries. That's making it very difficult for her to be present in the way you think she is. I don't know, but I do like that you want to give her an opportunity. We should give everyone we're in a relationship with of any kind an opportunity to be told and to understand how we feel being in a relationship with them so they have the opportunity to possibly work on that. We don't just cut and run, right? So I don't know what she's going through. I don't know what she's up against. But I'm, I, you know, sit down and talk it out. It might be an ongoing conversation, especially if you guys don't have that kind of closeness and intimacy and comfort, you know. But it's worth the work, right? That's why you're reaching out. So do it, you know, because you also want that skill set, and you want to have the confidence, ability to uh, do that with other people in other relationships you have. So I'm proud of you. You know, it's a really important thing, and I bet you your mom will really honor and respect that. So, well done. Uh, all right, that is our show. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to talk about how to re-enter the dating world, whether you are newly single or ready to get back out there after a little bit of a break or losing someone, whatever it may be. How do we re-enter the dating world in 2021 with all that's going on? Yep, we'll talk about that and then doing some DMs. So join us tomorrow. As always, y'all, thanks for hanging out and you enjoy the rest of your night.